Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 57. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast. Before we get started with the interview, I just want to remind you of a couple of things. First and foremost, I just finished up a 30-day training session, so I have slots available if you're interested in personal one-on-one leadership coaching. We can do it in person if you're close enough, or we can certainly do it over the phone or via Skype. Go to doseofleadership.com and check out the coaching tab in my menu item, and you can get more information. Also, this episode is brought to you by my sponsor, audible.com. You've heard me talk about it. If you want to go ahead and get a, a free book, go to my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible or you can click on the audible trial menu item up in, on my website and you can download a free book any book that audio audible.com has over 100,000 titles I guarantee you're going to find a book that uh, you're wanting to get caught up on I used to wasn't a big fan of audio books and never really tested them I didn't think it'd be worthwhile but I love them now they're a great way to get caught up on all your reading you're doing the yard work going to work exercising you can make your smartphone smarter go to doseofleadership.com slash audible and take advantage of the special offer that they're giving to you. So anyway, thanks again for all your support, and um, thanks for tuning in. Here's the interview. I'm so thrilled to have on my show today Dr. Molly Marty. She's a resiliency researcher, psychologist, a lawyer, and adjunct professor of psychology at the University of Iowa. She brings years of experience in coaching and a prestigious list of business and athletic clients to her mission of helping leaders thrive and serve. She speaks around the globe on servant leadership, mentorship, resiliency and business ethics in addition to numerous academic articles her business success books have been published in several languages her latest book about judge max rosen walking with justice uncommon lessons from one of life's greatest mentors is being welcomed as a timeless handbook for being human over the past couple years dr marty has played a pivotal role in helping her small iowa community cope with recover from and grow through the devastating loss of three teens to suicide she recently accepted a position as CEO of the nonprofit Community Resili- Resiliency Project dedicated to empowering communities to grow resilient youth. Dr. Marty, thanks for coming on the show. Richard, happy to be here with you. Thank you. You know, we were talking before the recording here, and, and what's great about this podcast, I'm three months into it, and and uh, some of the little nuggets of surprises that come across, and, and definitely coming across you and your book has been a very pleasant surprise. I finished reading it last night, and I got to tell you, it, it moved me to tears a couple of times. What a great mentor! What a great blessing for you to have worked with such a great man. Let's talk about you, your book, and uh, and what brought you here. Ask away. I would love to. Well, how did let's talk? Let's let's bring our speed up to listeners about the the genesis of the book, and and let's introduce our listeners to to, to Max um, or Doctor or Judge Rosen. And uh, how did you come across and meeting him? I came across Judge uh, by another mentor. Mentors are so important to us in many, many ways, but he was my law review advisor. And I was walking down the hallway of the Iowa Law School, and he pulled me into his office, and he said, Molly, I have two things to say to you. Number one, you need to apply for a federal clerkship. And number two, you need to apply to Judge Max Rosen. Well, this law professor had actually clerked for Judge 
about 15 years prior to that. So he knew Judge, he knew me, and he saw that we would be a good fit. I don't know if he knew we would be as good a fit as we were um, because I went out to clerk for Judge for a year and I ended up staying for a few years. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the You know, he's, he's such an amazing man. And, I, and when you read the book, I mean, he's such a... Uh, a rare find anyway. I mean, it almost, it, and I got to tell you, I, I'm so envious of, of not having a mentor like that in my life. And having mentors are so um, special and unique for me. And I've had a lot of great mentors and I still do in my life, but wow, what a gift from God that, 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 that was given to you. It so, certainly was. And I've heard some feedback, um, even from people who didn't have a father, didn't have a mentor that they said, I, I, found myself so jealous of you while reading the book, but I got to the end and I felt like I had two more mentors. I had you and I had Judge. And yeah. so I hope that Judge continues to kind of guide you and some of that wisdom uh, has settled in where it comes up when you need it most. Yeah. That I, he wasn't... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just saying that was what was great about the book. I mean, I felt this like, oh my God, I wish I could have, have met this man. But what was great about your book is I felt like I did know him. I didn't feel like he was a part of my life after reading your book. So kudos to you for writing such a, um, I don't know, I was really captured by your book. I was really just encapsulated in the whole the whole time I read it. Thank you. Yeah, it, it came from the heart. It's a very different book than anything I've ever written, and it, it poured out very quickly. And I think what makes Judge so extraordinary is he was a man of influence. He is still one of our most cited jurists. He went to work in his later years in a federal building named in his honor. To give you a sense, I saw law libraries and portraits and, um, you know, the, the building dedicated to him. So um, he, he lived through a lot of accolades, and he was very, very accomplished and influential. But it wasn't those accomplishments that, you know, I, I equate it to a heart transplant. My heart simply ticked differently after spending time by the side of this man. He didn't accomplish that heart transplant through those vast accomplishments. It was by what he did on a daily basis, the choices he made, and how he lived to serve and uplift other people. That's how he rearranged my heart. Yeah. You know, the, the, the part that really brought me to tears, the first part of the book, was that I, I love that um, time when you had to go tell him that you were um, leaving, that, you know, your husband's family was in Iowa. You, you were, it was time you felt, due to your marriage and your partnership with your husband, it was time to move back closer to family. Um, but your heart was pulling. You didn't want to leave working with, with the judge, but you knew it was time you had to, and you shared that apple on, the, on the, the couch there with him, and what a great story. Tell me about that story. Yeah, some people say I, I read that story, but it's really a movie playing in my mind. They can see it, and it's, it's that real to me yet today. Um, judge had, I like I said, I went to court for one year. Um, he invited me back to stay with him as long as he was on the bench. It was an incredible honor. I uh, practiced law for a year while he had his two clerks come in for that following year, and then I came back to him with the intent of staying as long as he was on the bench. A couple more years passed. My husband just um, wasn't going to thrive in Pennsylvania. He's an Iowa boy. He needed to get back. I could see that. Uh, his trips back to Iowa were more and more frequent, longer. Right. And uh, we had had our first child, and uh, the grandparents were, you know, heartstrings were pulling him home. So it was very clear that, um, to support my marriage and my family, I needed to move back. And, and that wasn't a bad thing for me. I have family in Iowa as well. And, but I was so challenged by the work on a day-to-day -day basis of a federal clerkship. It's incredibly intellectually challenging. And I was being nourished by the daily mentorship of 
uh, Judge Rosen. So it was a very, very difficult decision. And I went in and uh, I couldn't even bring myself to say the words. And he knew. And, you know, he, he was that perceptive where he would just take things in and he nodded and he said, I, I you know, knew this day was coming. And so I think just watching a very young Molly and a young Monty, my husband, um, he could see those dynamics unfolding. And he had an apple sitting on his desk and he asked if I would like to share it and we sat on the leather couch and uh, he carved up the apple and we spent hours just reliving uh, a lot of the highlights of my clerkship and interesting cases and uh, times of levity with co-clerks and all of these things, um, experiences that really had shaped me over the prior four years. And uh, I say that, you know, I left being nourished not simply by the apple, but, you know, spiritually. I had broken bread with Judge. Um, it was that uh, sacred of, of a moment of connection to a man I, I truly adored. And so that was uh, the irony of it all is I came back to Iowa and we um, started at a couple apple orchards. And so <laughs> now I have nearly 3,000 apple trees wow. <laughs> planted with my husband. Uh, I didn't know that would be in my future. Yeah. So that's, that's one of those uh, ironies now that I look at, uh, that I broke bread with this apple. And uh, it was going to be a big part of my future that I had no idea mm. at the time. Well, what's so great about, you know, what became really clear to me in that story and then you see it throughout the entire book of which as you're talking about and what he was so gifted at and I think as we as as people that are aspiring to be leaders and, and we're always looking at our leadership style you know even the little things the nuances like you said in that meeting with your we shared the app with you but every time that you mentioned there they walked in and every time was always a good time for you and, and or whoever came up to to him he gave Everybody, his undivided attention. You know, he, it's the subtle things of his body language, of everything. He was totally connected with that moment and with where you're at. And I think that's so key for leadership and servant leadership today is being connected with every single moment, that every opportunity, every little meeting, no matter how small or nuanced it may be, every of those meetings is a leadership opportunity. And that's what he seemed to excel at. It is what he excelled at. When I really challenged myself as I wrote the book to say what was the most important thing, and I reached out to other co-clerks and people who knew him, and repeatedly they would say, when I was with him, I felt like I was the only one in the whole world. I could be in a room of hundreds of people, and yet I was the one that was most important to him. And Rich Mattisar, who um, was the professor who pulled me into his office and introduced me to Judge Rosen, he had written um, an endorsement, and and it included some of what you said. It made me laugh. It made me cry. But something that Rich said really stayed with me, and he said, all who worked with Judge saw his justice and compassion at work daily in every contribution, every phone call taken, every letter answered. He lived his life to serve, and those around him grew by his very presence. And so that's really, he says, a presence that lives on through walking with justice. And, you know, that's really what it, it does come down to is, um, you know, that chapter that I talk about gifts and, and presence. And um, he, was, he was a master at that. And I, I love that clothespin story about yeah. a lesson that he learned. He was five years old, and he learned an extraordinary lesson about with the, all with of the, the small opportunities, opportunities we have to expand the dignity of others. And... I mentioned I'm putting, uh, writing a commencement address, and I'm speaking to people, you know, where I was sitting 25 years ago, and and I think that back then I thought 
I, I was making leadership bigger than it was, and I thought, well, I will give when I make my first million, or I will, right. you know, I need to do this and this and this, and then I'll be a leader. And what Judge taught me is that it's simply making life better for another person on a daily basis, and we have so many opportunities to do that. And so to become more and more intentional about those opportunities and to say yes to those. And they don't take a lot of money, and they don't even take a lot of time. It's just being present with people and affirming them and expanding them. Yeah. You know, you you mentioned the clothespin story. That, that story struck me too because – and it made me really think about myself because um, – you know, the story is, you know, for, for the listeners, is that, you know, he got so much influence. He credited his mother for so much of, of creating who he was. And I, it was his mother, right, that who handed out the yes. moment? Yeah. And so he was – how old of a boy was he? I can't remember in the story. He was He's five. five. He was a young, yeah. young child. And um, during the Great Depression, and here was this uh, homeless man. And then they'd seen him a couple times. And mom had said, well, always give a dollar no matter what. You're, there's always someone poorer than you. Always give a dollar. And they mentioned or they saw that the same person was collecting their clothespins out in the yard or on the line. And, and he came up and sold them their own clothespins. And he thought that was wrong. But his mother was like, look, you know, it's important to, to give the man his dignity. You know, we'd give him the dollar anyway. Let's go ahead and, and let's keep his dignity intact. And I thought that was so, so powerful. What a powerful lesson. Did and it, I love to hear that that stuck with you and how you retell it. It was beautiful. You just retold it, and that, that's very much the heart of it. Um, yeah, yeah maybe know, if, if, when I read it, I thought, like, God, I don't know if I would have, if I saw that, if I would have given that, you know? And it made me think about, would I have the same response, you know? And most of us wouldn't, I don't think, you know? I think most of us would probably think, ah, you know, what are you trying to cheat me out of my... Instead of looking, you know, what his, his mother did was looking at you beyond that, you know? Why was he doing that, you know, and looking at why was that man doing what he had to do, you know? Right. And he actually had that contrast right in front of him because his sis- his aunt, his mom's sister, was visiting, and she was adamantly opposed to it. Right. And was saying to his mother, you know, Jenny, have you lost your own, you know, have you lost your mind? You're not going to buy your own clothespins. So, you know, I think that it was even that contrast uh, playing out in front of him. That really had that lesson, you know, hit home. Yeah. Um, to see the choices, the choice that his mother could make, and then the choice she did make. You know what I, I found too. I loved about what you said that he said, um, and hope, hopefully I get this right. But um, he found the truth in every. He, he looked for the truth in every case, not the absolute truth. Well, help yeah. me explain that. He, not just the absolute truth, but the truth. That he looked at every case. And he looked at the truth in every case. Like, talk to me about that a little bit. I thought that was pretty remarkable. Right. And that was, you know, in the context of a, a judge and a legal decision, but he did it on a, a person-by-person basis. And you know, think about what a federal judge does. He's sitting in a, a U.S. Court of Appeals directly under the Supreme Court. He really sees the worst of humanity coming before him right. on a daily basis. It was an education for this Iowa girl to go east and have a lot of... Um, Mafia cases. The young New Jersey was in the in the um, circuit, and um, murder cases and um, conflicts of every type, everything from property to torts to all of these cases would be appealed up to that federal level. And so, again and again, I saw him adjudicate the facts before him. But um, even that, he he never got cynical. He never got jaded, um, and he went beyond that. And he said to us. If these are real people, these are lives, and it goes beyond the lives of even the parties, 
Um, it certainly goes along uh, beyond the lives to the rights of all Americans and our obligation to protect the constitutional rights. So more specifically, it goes to these families. It goes to people that love these people that are in front of us. And he um, actually took us to prisons, low, medium, and high security prisons every year because he said, I want you to see the face of justice. These are real people, and we don't just sit up in this ivory tower and adjudicate and make these decisions. And so um, he, he made it so real to us, and you couldn't discuss any case with him without having him you know, ask these profound questions about impact and you know, what are the options for this person and what are the um, implications for this decision. And um, he was bound by precedent, and he had a, a great dedication, of course, to upholding the Constitution. But within that, he had such a um, vibrant humanity, a connection to that these were people, and that he would just kind of set this reset button every time uh, where he'd finish one case, and then he would have a clean slate, and he would look with fresh eyes, and, and they were eyes... Um, one thing that Judge really helped me appreciate is they were eyes not only of justice, but they were eyes of justice and compassion. I, I think that when you you are a justice seeker, and I, I'm one, I'm wired that way, the world can get real black and white very quickly. You can say, that's wrong, and we need accountability, and we need consequences. And you know, justice can have some very hard edges. Right. What Judge taught me... And he said it, that daily prayer it shows up there where he says, you know, God, please help me make a contribution to a just and peaceful world. As I've grown my leadership, I, I've had times where I, I still talk to judge, and I'm like, ah, oh, that's why you didn't just mm-hmm. pray to contribute to justice. You prayed to contribute to justice and peace. And and that's what I saw him walk out, is that he he diligently pursued and adjudicated justice, but it was always housed on a foundation of compassion and humanity. Yeah, and what I love you brought up, and I wrote that down, I wanted to, to, to mention that, his daily prayer, and, and and you hit it so, I thought that was so great, and I think when you talk about leadership and you look at it today, you're right, I think just like looking at justice and we look at leadership, leadership can have some hard edges too, or at least the perception is that you need to be a great leader, you need to be a little more black and white, and the exact opposite is true, and I think what so many people miss on leadership, and and when we think about leadership, and least, I know I came from this 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 realm myself, where the perception was you do these things, it's all about the advancement and the career and everything else, and that's not the case. Leadership is is about helping others in need. In fact, it's a responsibility of leadership, and that's what makes leadership so great. And it's it also what makes leadership a little bit harder because I think sometimes it um, it goes against some of our human nature. I think our, the cynical side of us, anyway. Um, I think it goes, I don't know that it goes against our human nature at the core, but I do think it goes against our education. It yeah, goes against better put, yes. um, our culture, our society. Yes, very good. You know, yeah. when, I, when I have someone, I, I came to judge aside and I was a hard-hitting, driven young lawyer. I had that legal training. I was very dominant left brain. Um, I was the previous valedictorian, I was very driven to accomplish and to right. succeed and to lead, and I was going to set the world on fire. And that's who I was when I came to his side. And then to walk alongside this man who's teaching me that the greatest path of influence is love was yeah. an awakening. It's like, what? No. It, it, leadership <laughs> is about being in charge. Leadership right, is about right. making things happen. And and he taught me again and again, not by what he always said, but how he walked out his life and how he led, is that I saw that leadership is 
about service. And, and I, you know, it was that process of really, and this is what leadership is. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm continuing to, to learn and, and to refine. You know, I, I write a book like this often because um, I need these reminders. I just mentioned to you before the interview, I just reread this book. Uh, it's not unusual for me if I'm in a, a position where I'm struggling or being challenged where I pick up this book and I read it and those words fall not like I, I wrote them. Um, I need those reminders that judge taught me as a young lawyer. Yeah, you hit it right. I mean, maybe that's why this book is so struck me so well, because the same way, I mean, I looked at leadership much like you did on, on the driven side of being that young lawyer, like you talked about, and then learning as, as life has kind of happened and progressed, that it is about, that the key to it is about love. If you really want to be a leader, you have to be passionate about helping other people. You have to be in love with the process of helping other people. And I got to admit to you, some days I put on a I hate people t-shirt and I want to, re, re, you know, recoil and, re, and, and retack or, or, you know, get away from it because it's so frustrating. But reading a book like this and, and finding mentors like that, you know, brings you back to, to why it's so important. And it's so refreshing, especially in this cynical world that we live in today. I think it is more cynical than it's probably ever been. It seems so negative. I mean, and, and um, I don't know. Tell, tell me a little bit about how this book has helped you, or I mean, how your relationship with judges helped you. I mean, this book is certainly helping me remember some of those core truths that we need to apply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a couple things one, that come up as we talk about this is, one, two, to say, you know, your greatest path of influence is love doesn't mean it's you're uh, a pushover and sorry, right. warm and fuzzies. Um, Judge was tremendous at holding us accountable. Uh, he wanted you to, just, you wanted to be better for him. You wanted to do better and, and walk out excellence for him. And, and it, it would just take one question from him of, well, don't you think it's time to, or don't you think we better? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you knew, like, yes, I, I'm not carrying my load or I'm not doing this the way that I am capable of doing. So he, uh, had great accountability in that relationship. So that's one point I want to make. As far as this world of uh, cynicism and skepticism, without a doubt, it's um, it, it's all kind of this big ball of, of sensationalism as well, and right. voyeurism and reality TV, and uh, the double-edged sort of technology is a big piece of this, that we have technology that both connects and disconnects us, and it disconnects us from each other, and it disconnects us from ourselves. It disconnects us from that... Uh, true voice within us that does have that wisdom and it's a noisy noisy world and so we need to be ever more vigilant to uh, have build in stillness to our lives build in that white space build in that quiet so that we can stay connected uh, to our inner guidance and not be um, blown around in the wind of the noise of this world one thing i, I write about in the book um, is that judge was a master of rejuvenation and i think that mm. that's really important in in my work i I say that my mission is to help leaders thrive and serve. Um, those need to go together. This isn't about martyrdom. This isn't about giving and giving to the point of exhaustion. Judge gave uh, joyfully. He gave in a way that filled him up. He truly understood. And I, I don't. We never. I never talked to Judge about the science. That is pretty interesting too, because as a resiliency researcher, in my time after Judge, I uh, have studied and studied all of these things that rejuvenate us and make us healthier and happier, and I've yet to find something that the man didn't do right uh, mm. from his healthy diet and uh, his exercise and his daily nap. We would laugh about that as young lawyers, that he would take his afternoon nap 
Well, as a psychologist, I know now that that bought him about four hours of elevated energy in which he went back into the community. He mentored young lawyers. He had dinner with people. He, you know, gave more, but he gave in a way that filled himself up. But he made very, very wise decisions on a day-to-day basis to rejuvenate himself. And so I think that that's, it's an essential, that if you're not going to get worn down by the cynicism and the skeptics, you need to be really smart about refueling your mind, body, and spirit on a daily basis. Yeah. Oh, there's so many so many good pieces of this book. I mean, we've, we've hit, you got got 25 leadership lessons in this book. We've hit them about five or six and some of my favorite. Is there any one other particular one that really stands out as one of your favorites did we, did, or did we hit, hit one of your favorites already? Yeah, I, the closest story is one of my favorites. Um, and so I'm glad we hit that. I like the emphasis. Um, I, I guess one of my favorites is our value lies not in status or title, but in the roots of um, our character and depth of our compassion. Yeah. And, you know, that um, is really a, a big lesson I learned walking by Judge's side. You know, again, I went there with the, the grades, the accomplishments, the law review, all of those things. I had done the hoop jumping. I had spent years uh, doing the hoop jumping and thinking, um, you know, that that's what it was about. And then I go and study by this influential man, and again and again I saw his humility, I saw his character, I saw his compassion. Uh, I would see, I would sit at dinner, and, and there would be times where somebody would just really be bragging about who they were or what their accomplishments were if they didn't know who Judge was. And, and he would leave that conversation, and unless they asked, they still didn't know who Judge was. Right. Um, you know, he, he was so humble, and he knew what gave him value as a human being, and um, it was, you know, that was an extraordinary lesson to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I just, I don't know, I can't say enough about this book. It's so, it, it it's one of those rare gems and one of those finds. I just, unexpected, pleasant surprises that I came across it. And um, and uh, I consider Judge a mentor of mine now. I mean, it's it's written that well, and I felt like I, I felt like I know the man now. So thank you for writing it, and thank you for uh, for being a part of his life and bringing him into life on those pages. Well, you're welcome. And then the other thing I, I would say, and we've kind of talked about this with the leadership and, you know, it's not about being in charge. It's really about looking at the needs in front of you yeah. and asking, do I have some something unique to bring healing or bring wholeness? Do I have education or skills or experience or connections? And, you know, this book is what led me into my current work as director of the Community Resiliency Project. And I, I came home after, you know, you mentioned that in the intro, we lost these three students, uh, teenagers, to suicide. And I came home after the loss of the third boy and picked up this book, and um, I opened it to that chapter with where I had left off. I was editing it. Opened it to that chapter where Judge was teaching me these things, and that's what caused me to look at my life and thought, wow, you know, I'm a resiliency researcher. I have three teams of my own in this community. I'm well connected to people that can help bring healing and um, I need to step forward. This is something that I need to do. And that was that very day that I started that work, which has turned into uh, this nonprofit. And um, you know that that's all connected to Judge. And actually, on the Community Resiliency Project dot uh, org, the site. If uh, somebody's listening and they want this book, a great place to get this book. You can get it Amazon or anywhere that books are sold. But on our Community Resiliency Project dot org site, if you buy it through there. Um, all of the profits go to support 
our work in the community of empowering these uh, communities to grow stronger kids. So t- how long how long have you been doing this uh, community resiliency project? How long have, uh, what is the age of it? Yeah, just over a couple of years is when, um, you know, I, I was called to it that day through this book, and then we uh, focused, of course, intensely in this community that lost these kids, and we're still doing the work there. Um, it's a pilot thriving community, but it's grown um, to we're we're now a, a nonprofit group. We have an advisory board. We are helping other communities that have lost kids. Uh, we just presented at a, a conference, and um, we've built out the model of youth resiliency. And so we continue to um, you know build curriculums and basically uh, the tools that we needed and we thought would be there when we went reeling, uh, they weren't there. And so as we started to put that together and do the research and find out what are the best practices and how do we heal and how do we build these multi-layers of support for our youth, um, we have been uh, open to sharing those with other communities in need. So, so the, it's, it's been a couple of years I've um, been working on so, this. So is the mission behind the, the nonprofit, is it um, suicide prevention and recovery after suicide for the community or what, what is the main focus? Yeah, and our mission is to empower communities to grow resilient youth and create an environment in which no life is lost to suicide. Yeah. So it's certainly, uh, we have the experience of what do you do? It's called postvention. What do you do after you lose a child? The ideal, of course, is to take this work and have communities proactively start to do this work. It's a relationship-based model of resiliency. And so it's the importance of having uh, three non-parent trusted adults in the lives of the youth. That's what research shows, that if you have these uh, relationships, some of them will be at school, others will be in the community itself, and um, it really strengthens these kids so that they can weather life's adversities. And so it's um, the model is on the site. Again, it, it's called the easy model, and we just continue to try to boil down the big research and best practices into bite-sized tools that teachers and parents and community uh, leaders can use. So it's called easy, uh, engage, connect, challenge, enrich. And for example, we have a, a curriculum called You Matter, We Need You, and we just are rolling that out in our community. And so we're taking this message to youth, but then we also are empowering them as leaders to be taking this message to other people, to their peers and into the community. Um, so everyone is, is really affirmed as the value, the inherent value they have as a human being, and then understand that our community needs them. And like we've been talking about, the beautiful thing about that is as they contribute, they not only strengthen our community, they strengthen themselves. What's the biggest kind of aha that you learned from that? What have you learned about teen suicide, and, and what really kind of, did anything really surprise you? Yeah, it's it's very similar, I think, to what we've been talking about, judge and servant leadership, and it can sound warm and fuzzy, and, you know, I'm, I'm still research-based. I have a lot of training as a researcher to find that the most important factor are these relationships of trusted, caring adults. The most protective factor is for a child to say, I have someone who sees me, who accepts me for who I am, who celebrates me and is there to challenge and support me, and they care. It, that's the most important factor. And so um, that can sound kind of warm and fuzzy to me as a researcher, but it's, the research is so solid on it. So I think that was my biggest aha, 
And so we're really creating a, a relationship-based model. And and if you think about it, I mean, think back, who was your favorite teacher? You think back, yeah. you know, was it kindergarten or fifth grade or seventh grade? And then you say, why? And those answers come back. Yeah. She cared. Yeah. They they made me feel good about myself. They accepted me. They challenged me. They understood me. It, it's about relationships. And, and so it really... Is all coming together, you know, things I didn't know when I wrote this book, but it, this book is still an important part of our work with youth today. You know, I always was reading something yesterday, I can't remember where I read it, but it's almost like um, sometimes I wonder if this, this advent of the social media, and um, I think in a lot of ways with everything that's out there and uh, the visibility and these kind of idea of, you know, friends and statuses and everything else, in some ways it's it's made us more isolated in a way. And it seems like in teens, I don't know, I, again, I, I got two teenage daughters myself and two that are almost teen, one's almost a, almost a third teenager, but it, it seems so different now and it seems more isolated in a way. I don't know if I'm trying to, how, how even articulate it but it seems like with all this the more exposure the more isolated we become does that make any sense oh it does it does it is definitely you know any advancement is going to be a double-edged sword and you know technology is no and social media is no exception um you know we need to be very very vigilant um i have hope i just went to that conference that we just spoke uh, at about uh, teen suicide and, and recovering as a community. And so we had our superintendent of schools, our school counselor, a, a police officer who was on the crisis response team for all of these suicides. So, um, we had a media, a news director, and we had a community voice. And so, so these answers need that type of holistic response and that partnership between school and community and families. And so we were speaking at this uh, conference, but it started out and had a focus on technology, and they randomly picked out a couple uh, students, teenagers from the audience, and they had all of the adults be putting up their concerns about social media or what they didn't like about it or what wasn't right, and then they had these two teens come up. I think the idea was these teens could educate us or help us see things from their perspective or you know, kind of uh, help us uh, maybe take some things into account we weren't taking into account. Well, the first teen stood up and she said, you know, I, I've been told that, that my cell phone is distracting. It's taking away from um, conversations that people want. They want me to look them in the eye. They want me to talk to them. And, and she's like, I agree. It's a big distraction. Like, we need to be just aware of, of how it can be distracting. We need to learn how to put it down. So she said something that I thought, wow, that's really mature. Then the second boy stood up and he said, you know, what is this with all these friends? You know, how many are really friends? I mean, get off of the computer and go spend time with real friends. You don't have a thousand friends. Yeah. You have some good friends. And so both these kids relate very mature messages. And so things like that give me hope. You know, we talked yeah. about this world and how quickly it's moving and it's cynical and all those things, but there are tremendous, um, tremendous signs that youth are understanding these challenges and are finding better ways to use them. And they're ready to um, use the, you know, like we say double-edged sword. There's a lot of good, tremendous good. And yeah. you have never, ever had the power to use technology in a way that they can change the world and, and literally the world <laughs> around the world 
overnight. Yeah. And they, they can have their voices be heard, and they can help, and they can serve in a way that we were never able to as youth. And I'm seeing a lot of those types of, of movements and even adults bringing groups together to support youth in using their voices that way. That gives me tremendous hope for our future. Well, that's great to hear. I mean, I, I love that. I love finding the... Um you know, positive and the negative. I think you're right. And that's one of the benefits too of this podcast is, is you know, I was so wrapped up in the negativity and the cynicism and I kind of purposely checked out in a way and then talking to folks like yourself and to entrepreneurs and, and uh, other business leaders, there is a lot of positive leadership, a lot of positive business growth, a lot of people that are doing great positive things and you never hear about it. And that's so it's always encouraged for me to hear things like that. What would you say to the um, kind of devil's advocate, if you would, of, of um, and, and, I, and I'm curious if you get any f- pushback from this or not, if people saying, well, look, it's, it's a family issue. Why are you making it about a community issue or a school issue? Um, I'm with you. I think it is a community issue. I think it helps out because um, what do you say to the detractors of that is saying, well, look, this is a personal issue. It's not why, – why is the community concerned? Sure. Yeah, our model is, you know, ideally, you start with the the youth themselves. And so the youth need certain uh, tools and support and a way to be in the world. But not all kids have that, Um, some uh, because they have mental illness, some because they just haven't had the supports they need to grow in that way. So, you know, you have the first shot going directly to the child, and there's some value in that. Then the home, and the home, you know, again, the research shows that the stability of the home is a dominant Uh, effect. It has a dominant impact. But the reality is not all kids are getting this in their homes. And so we then look to the schools, and the schools have a tremendous opportunity. These teachers, as these trusted adults, have an opportunity to connect with these kids and give them uh, things that they're not getting at home or to identify that they are in risk and they need additional support. But school's not 24-7 either, and uh, we have, over time, I think as a society, made this shift of we don't just expect schools to educate our kids, we expect them to raise our kids, and they're drowning. I I work very, very closely with schools, and they are drowning under both federal and state mandates uh, that they're having a hard time even educating because they uh, are being required to do so many other things. So community is a really untapped resource. Not a lot of people are talking about that untapped potential within a community to have yet a third opportunity beyond the home and the school to step in and support both families and schools. And so that's what our work is with the Community Resiliency Project. Um, It is a a community issue. The loss of each of these children lessens our community in profound, profound ways. And um, even, you know, when the loss is at school, one of our experiences was, um, so there's a, there can even be a, a very uh, intimate connection to school, but that doesn't mean that it's a, a school issue. It's uh, really the ability for all of the adults in our community to step forward and say, um, th- again, respond to this call to judge put out, this, this call to stewardship, this call to say everything you have is gift, everything within you and around you, how are you going to use it? to support others in your community because there are needs right now and you have something to give. So how are you going to do this? So that's the work of the Community Resiliency Project. Um, again, yes, you could you could go with that black and white that we talked about, draw the line, this is a family issue. You know, if they can't raise their kid, then that's their problem. How does that help us as yeah. a society, as a community, and how does it help, you know, my kids who had to 
process the loss of friends and brothers of good friends, and um, it impacts us all. Well, Dr. Marty, you're a true hero of mine. I think you're doing great work. I love the book that you wrote. How else? You mentioned, but let's mention again, and I'll have links to this on the post when I post the podcast. How can people get in touch with you? Sure. My uh, site is, uh, we've been talking about the Community Resiliency Project work. That's just communityresiliencyproject.org. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for misspellings there. So we actually also did crproject.org. Uh, <laughs> there's a redirect, yep. crproject.org. Um, Walking with Justice is at walkingwithjustice.com, and I'm found at Dr. Molly, D-R-M-O-L-L-I-E, dot com. Well, Dr. Marty, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a true privilege and honor. I'm glad to have you in my network. I'll definitely keep in touch with you, and anything I can do to help you promote the book, promote the, the organization uh, I'm in. So uh, keep me on your list. Oh, I certainly will, Richard. I'm glad uh, we're connected now on social media, and we'll continue to, to stay in touch. All right. Thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Marty. Take care. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com. 